This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. There are several ways to look at economic development in West Virginia. One is the traditional method of luring large corporations to the state. But I think it's now time to, uh, to pivot a bit and invest in the people. I don't think it's either or. It's people development and it's economic development, jobs creation. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. The West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection has signed an agreement with Union Carbide to further reduce ethylene oxide emissions at its institute facility. Caroline McGregor reports. Scott Mandarola, Deputy Cabinet Secretary for the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection, said this agreement establishes new requirements above and beyond state and federal regulations. It'll identify and fix leaks at a level 50 to 1,000 times lower than what was required by current regulation. The agreement requires a site-specific screening program for rail cars containing ethylene oxide in its service. Last year, the DEP conducted a short-term study sampling ethylene oxide at seven sites in and around the Institute facility. A public meeting on the final report will be held Thursday, March 2nd, from 6 to 8 p.m. at the WVSU Institute. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. With ramp season nearly here, many West Virginians are preparing to harvest the wild, onion-like crop. Shepard Snyder has more on what guidelines to follow. You should only harvest ramps from patches with more than 100 plants and only collect around 20% of each patch to allow the remaining plants to mature. When digging bulbs, use a soil fork or hand trowel so as not to disturb the roots of neighboring plants and make sure to cover any bare soil with leaves to keep invasive plants from growing nearby. Amy Lovell, Monongahela National Forest Educational Representative, says harvesting ramps has seen an uptick in popularity in recent years. We see um, children these days going out with their parents and their grandparents to to harvest ramps, and it's really an intergenerational activity. The maximum amount individuals can collect is two gallons per person, or 180 plants. Collecting the plants for commercial purposes is not allowed. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Shepard Snyder in Martinsburg. America's prison system releases at least 95% of the men and women incarcerated when their sentences are finished. When they re-enter society, many struggle to navigate that freedom successfully. On the next Us and Them, host Trey Kay hears about the challenges of re-entry. Two women who founded Tennessee Voices for Victims suggest an important starting point is to recognize that many of the women and men serving time are victims themselves. Valerie Craig and Verna Wyatt say recognizing that trauma can be a powerful step. Here's an excerpt from Reentry. So, like, for me, Reentry, none of it's working right. The problem is traumatic abuse that has been layered on over the years and it's not been addressed or healed and we're not healing it. But do you suspect that because of this trauma that they're going to continue um, perpetuating it and traumatize other people? I don't even think I could give you a number of how often we have taught domestic violence classes or child abuse classes 
And we have heard stories like this one where this young man, he was probably in his 20s and he is sitting there and you get to see him. He is moving in his seat and he is just getting agitated and angry. And finally, his hand shoots up and he goes, Miss Fowler, he's like, I just he's like, I just have to tell you this story. And he said, you know, when I was 15, he said, I was talking back to my mom and she went into the kitchen and she came back with a knife and she stabbed me with it. And I never talked back to her again. So he is presenting this to me and Verna as if this is a good example. <laughs> it's appropriate. Of appropriate <sighs> discipline. And it was in that moment that I realized he doesn't understand why that would be a problem. And therein lies my challenge as the facilitator. Because clearly, I've now got to work on meeting you in this place where that would be considered normal. Valerie, I just yeah. I just want to make sure that I get from you, like, how do you define reentry? Personally, I think as a society, we need to be thinking about reentry from moment of arrest. of arrest. The whole system needs to have the one singular thought in mind. This person will be back on our streets. It is my opinion that everybody from law enforcement on down really needs to be thinking about re-entry every single system needs to be thinking about how do i interact with this person who is in trauma i mean i know that one of the most frustrating things for police officers is the the catch and the release right. that's happening i pick them up we release them i pick up pick them up and i release them how do we interface in a therapeutic healing way from that first moment of contact. And then, you know, and I don't want to just, you know, harp on law enforcement. I mean, it goes from there. I mean, it's the DAs and it is the public defenders and it is the judges and it is, you know, the whole bail issues. And then it is the correctional officers. I mean, like it, it just kind of goes down the line. But if we don't help that young man understand that his mother should not have stabbed him because he talked back to her, I, I don't know how he would come out of prison without in continuing the behavior that he's always had. If it's We've a- got to have the intersection. Those points of intersection during reentry are key. And that's where Daryl McGraw now focuses his efforts. After 10 years in a Connecticut prison, he is now a criminal justice reform expert. Daryl says he reentered society with a plan for who he wanted to be. He then went on to found formerly Inc., and says he's been able to implement some reentry ideas to help other folks reintegrate. One example, forensic peer support. We're training individuals with lived experience of the criminal justice system who have been incarcerated or have been involved in the criminal justice system. And now you train them to teach others how to navigate and how to identify and also how not to get frustrated when the no's come because the no's do come, right? They do, you know, when doors close in your face, how not to get frustrated, how to support those individuals upon transition. One thing that America does really well is incarcerating people. We incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. However, we do a terrible job of reentry. Reentry doesn't begin 60 days or 90 days before release. The system should be working on preparing me for release, no matter how much time I have. 
We've been listening to an excerpt from the latest Us and Them episode, Reentry. Tune in tonight at 8 p.m. on West Virginia Public Broadcasting, where you can hear the entire episode. There will be an encore broadcast on Saturday, February 25th at 3 p.m. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, and the Just Trust. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 7.52. Light rain this morning, breezy today with gradual clearing. High temperatures in the 60s and 70s. Tonight, windy with light rain possible, lows in the 30s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with gusty wind, highs in the 40s. Support for the weather forecast is provided by the attorneys at Taurus Save a Law, representing firefighters, police officers, and West Virginia families. Information at TaurusSaveAlaw.com. With large budget surpluses in recent years, there has been a lot of discussion about what to do with that money. One thought is to use a large portion of it for economic development projects, enticing companies to set up shop here. Another school of thought is to invest that money in poverty programs to bring the poorest West Virginians up. Reporter Chris Schultz speaks with Mitch Carmichael, the Secretary of the West Virginia Department of Economic Development, and Reverend Matthew Watts from the Tuesday Morning Group. So economic development is the talk of, at the very least, this town, I, I would argue possibly the state at the moment, and uh, we're talking about some big numbers. I mean, um, at least one bill that's being discussed in the House right now has some $500 million coming to your department. Uh, I'm curious to know, what are your plans uh, for that money, Secretary? Well, I, uh, I'll say it like, I'll answer that question in this way, what we've done with it in the past. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway committed to West Virginia, Nucor, uh, the big steel manufacturer committed to West Virginia, Commercial Metals Company, Pure Watercraft, Form Energy, all these technology companies, all these world-class companies that are providing great jobs for West Virginians have been, we've utilized that type of funding uh, to attract those companies. So it's something that's done on a, uh, a national and an international basis, frankly, to utilize funds that protect West Virginians while providing uh, world-class jobs and employment opportunities for our citizens. It's certainly very exciting to hear the names of all these companies, these multinationals in the case of Berkshire Hathaway, deciding to come to West Virginia in what I would call maybe traditional economic development. Uh, Reverend Watts, you have advocated for a slightly different approach. Well, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I concur with a lot of what Secretary Carmichael said, and his office is doing an incredible job attracting businesses and jobs to West Virginia, and I think those were wise investments that were made. But I think it's now time to, uh, to pivot a bit and invest in the people. I don't think it's either or. Uh, I think it's this and. It's people development and it's economic development, jobs creation. You know, people invented the wheel. People invented the, uh, the, the uh, 
carriage, they, invented, they built the factories and the manufacturing plants, it's the people. And I think we have an opportunity to invest in our people, particularly to increase labor force participation, which I believe to be our number one economic challenge. We perennially have the lowest labor force participation rate in the nation. We have an education crisis right now, uh, deepest decline in our national assessment of education progress test scores, uh, standardized test scores still below pre-COVID levels, 32,000 student school suspensions a year. We've got to focus on investing in the people in the places where they live, and that's where we've advocated for $300 million of the remaining American Rescue Plan Act dollars to go toward investing in some of those enumerated projects, categories that's actually delineated in the federal statute. So, Secretary, you know, we just heard uh, Reverend Watts tell us a little bit about, you know, some things that could boost West Virginia's social capital. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that your department is looking at right now? Absolutely. I think uh, Reverend Watts does a great job. He and I have worked together for years to try to advance uh, West Virginia, our people and our culture and our values. And uh, he's a thousand percent right. I've been through all these education wars and to make sure that uh, it is a responsibility of this state and of this generation to educate the next generation for world-class jobs and opportunities in our state. And to the extent that we can raise our uh, labor force participation rates uh, and get more people actively involved in seeking great employment opportunities, I think it helps not only our school systems, but our social programs and our entire fabric of our society when we have people working in great jobs. So, Reverend Watts, you know, we're hearing the secretary here say that that's definitely a priority and a necessity. So why do you feel that it's necessary to allocate, I believe the number is $300 million directly to uh, what you're proposing? If I had my druthers, it would be the whole $500 million, but hey, I'm trying to be fair and just and <laughs> equitable in the allocation of these resources. The reason it's so important is because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. As Naomi Klein wrote in her book, The Shock Jock Doctrine, is doing crisis when you can do big things because the government responds in an unprecedented way. So the $1.25 billion in CARES Act dollars, over $4 billion in, uh, in the uh, opera dollars that's come to West Virginia, unprecedented response from the federal government. So we have this unique opportunity, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, to do some strategic investments in some of the areas that the Secretary articulated. Uh, we're calling for significant dollars to be invested in summer job programs for youth that are academically behind, and many of our young people were before COVID. They're falling further behind now. We have an opportunity to put them in academic enrichment programs and also to give them work experience that I had the benefit of participating when I was a young kid growing up in southern West Virginia. That was Reverend Matthew Watts and Economic Development Secretary Mitch Carmichael speaking with Chris Schultz for the legislature today. To hear the rest of that interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org. Tune in every evening, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. on radio and television to get updates on the legislative session. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning.